Last week, someone mentioned that video to me, and uh, I was hanging around outside in the hallway at one of the tables, and somebody told me about that video, and I thought, man, I've got I've to check that out. And uh, as, soon as, I, as soon as I saw it, I knew that uh, I needed to show it this morning because it, it really spoke to the area, spoke to what I, where I want to go today. What blew me away most when I saw that video was not, I mean, certainly the, some of the external changes in his life blew me away. But what blew me away the most, I got to say to you, what blew me away the most was the internal change in that man's life. How do you explain the change that he experienced? How, how do you explain that a, a man that goes from bitterness and anger, um, the death of his mom, uh, all of the disabilities that that man has, how do you explain a guy like that saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why have you been so good to me? I don't know how you explain that except, that, except by something supernatural. You know, again, I want, to, I want to welcome those of you who are new to City Church, and, and I certainly want to welcome the people who are uh, perhaps listening to our podcast right now. I, last week, we started a new series here. Uh, at City Church, and it's called Vision Evansville and Beyond. And last week we talked about the fact that our ministry here at City Church is built around uh, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have this tagline that it says, this changes everything. And the this that we're referring to is the cross of Christ. And we talked last week about uh, the fact that before you can experience the power of the cross in your own personal life, you have to understand the offense of the cross. And the offense of the, of the cross is that what the cross says to everybody, it says it to the most moral and the, the best uh, and the most responsible people and citizens in our city, and, and it says this to the least moral and the least responsible in our city, it says the same thing, that you are both equal in terms of your standing before God. Neither of you are any better than the other. And that's offensive to human pride. Uh, that's offensive to human pride. It, it, what the cross says is that you are both. Everybody is so profoundly broken that someone had to die for your sins. That's the offense of the cross. And once you get that, once you understand that, then it changes everything. You, you may love the cross, you may hate the cross, but you won't be indifferent to the cross anymore once you get that. That's, that, that's what we talked about last week. And we, we said that, that the cross of Christ is what our ministry is, is built around. And you can see that, by the way, in our vision statement. In fact, we'll put it up here on the screen so that you can see it. That The, the vision uh, of City Church is that we want to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the cross. I mean, we're talking about the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's something in that vision statement that I want you to see that's very pertinent to what I want to talk about today. And that is that the change that we hope, you see it at at the end of the statement, the change that we hope to bring to the city of Evansville and beyond is contingent upon us changing, right? We said that we want to be a part of a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be convinced that the cross can and does bring profound change uh, into people's lives, the kind of change that you just saw in the video with David Ring. And we need to be convinced, too, 
that the only hope for the city of Evansville and beyond is the kind of change that the cross brings. And I think once we become convinced of that, then it will give us a sense of urgency and a passion that will ignite our ministry. We won't be complacent anymore. And we won't think, well, you know, church is just something that you do on Sunday. It's just tradition. We've got to do it. You know, you just go. No, we will begin to say, wait a minute. This is the hope for the city of Evansville and beyond. This is, this is what can save marriages. The cross of Christ can save marriages. It can heal addicts. It can change racial division. It can heal socioeconomic issues. Not governmental programs, although governmental programs can be good. They're not going to bring the kind of change that the cross can bring. Uh, not education. Education's good, but it's not going to bring the kind of change that the cross brings. Not self-help programs. It's the, it's the cross of Christ that is going to bring change into human lives. It's the hope for the city of Evansville, and it's the hope for beyond the city of Evansville. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to convince you of that. I want to convince you that the cross brings profound and distinctive change into people's lives. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in them right now to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 18 is where we'll start reading this morning. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We want to talk about the change that the cross of Christ brings into people's lives. And we want to talk about how it's distinctive from any other kind of change. It's the only thing that can bring the kind of explosive change that you just saw in that man's life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. We'll start there in a moment. Just a little context here. Peter, who wrote this, was a disciple of Jesus, knew Jesus personally, had experienced himself profound change. Uh, before the cross of Christ, Peter was, he was, well, he was frankly a coward. He denied Jesus three times at the cross. Um, after the cross of Jesus and after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter became a very bold, very courageous leader that tradition has it was uh, martyred himself for his faith uh, in Jesus Christ. So the extreme change in Peter's life. What I want to do is I want to read the verses here, and then I want to come back and we'll break them down. But let's read these verses, chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll read through uh, verse 3 of chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ... A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that, you, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted uh, that the Lord is, is good. There's a way more here that I can possibly cover um, in the short period of time that I've got. So what I want to do is I want to get what's relevant to us today as we speak about change. And we'll save the rest for another time. There are four major ideas. 
with respect to change in the life of a believer in Christ that I want you to get. Here they are. Four major ideas. We'll come back and break these down. Here, here they are. First, the experience of change in the life of a believer is normative. The experience of change in the life of a believer is normative. Second, the type of change that a believer experiences is distinctive. Third, the orientation of change in the life of a believer is positive. And in fourth, the motivation for change in the life of a believer is the cross. Let me read those again. The experience of change is normative. The type of change is distinctive. The uh, orientation of change is positive, And the motivation for change uh, is the cross. Let me start with that first one. I just want to explain to you what I mean by this. The experience of change in the life of a believer is normative. Here's another way to say that. We should expect radical change, the kind of change that we saw in David Ring. We should expect radical change in the lives of people who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to do, I want you to look at the primary metaphor that Peter uses to describe spiritual growth in this passage. Look at verse 123. He says in 123, he says that you were born again. And then go down to chapter 2, verse 2. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual uh, milk. Now, the reason that Peter, that Peter uses this metaphor of childbirth and development is that he wants us to understand that believers in Christ naturally do uh, what babies naturally do, which is they grow and they change radically over the course of a lifetime, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't. If I showed you a picture of me when I was a little kid, you probably wouldn't even recognize that picture. I've changed so much physically, okay? And Peter says this is the same thing happens spiritually to believers in Christ. They, they grow radically. They change radically over the course of their, last, of, of their lifetime. I remember uh, when our oldest son was born, Corey, uh, I was overwhelmed when they... I was overwhelmed by how small he was. And when they, when they sent him home with us, I thought, what are you doing? We don't have any idea what to do with this child, and there's no margin for error. Look how small this, this little guy is. And I, I can remember just sweating those first few days um, before we went back to the doctor you know, to weigh him and stuff. Just I, I was so scared that he wouldn't grow and, and gain weight. And... and you take them back to the doctor because the doctor wants to check on that, right? Because, because what are babies supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to grow and gain weight. And if they don't do it, then, then the doctor gets worried because it, that would be abnormal if a baby doesn't grow, right? And in the same way, what Peter is saying is that we should naturally expect enormous change in people who believe in Christ. From the moment that they believe in Christ... Throughout the rest of their lives, we should expect enormous change in them. As much as you would expect to see mentally or physically, uh, mental and physical change between an infant and adult, we should, we should expect to see that. And that's, that's what you heard in that, in that story. And, and, and maybe that's what some of you have experienced from the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ. Radical change. Peter's saying we should expect Radical change in people's lives. The kind of, the kind of change that, that nothing else, that, that no other program, that no other religion uh, could ever provide. Radical change. Now, why do, I, why do I say radical change? Because here's the thing I want you to get, is that what we're talking about here uh, in Christianity is different from the kind of change that you see in self-help or in religion. 
It's, and that's, that's really my second point, is that the type of change that believers experience is distinctive. Okay, so we should expect change, okay? And, and second, that change is going to be very distinctive. Some friends of mine forwarded to me uh, uh, an email some time ago that came from uh, somebody that was asking some very honest questions uh, about Christianity, and they'd sent this email to a, to a group of friends and, and family. And this person was asking, and it was just an honest question, and I totally understand why this person would have asked it. You know, the person said, have you ever thought that Christianity is just another self-help strategy? Or have you ever thought that it's just like any other world religion that just, you know, it's just, you know, all of them are the same. They're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to make people better. And I, and I get it because, frankly, that's how Christianity is often preached. It's, just, it's another sort of be good and, and self-help strategy. That's how it's often preached. But let me tell you, it is absolutely not, not the same as self-help. And it's absolutely not the same as uh, any other religion. What Christianity talks about, the kind of change that Christianity brings into people's lives is way more profound and it is way more radical than anything else. And you can see it in this passage. Um, something's happening in this passage. I don't know if you caught it the first time. But there's this thing that Peter's doing. He keeps comparing human efforts at change with the supernatural change that the cross of Christ brings into people's lives. Look back at verse 18. In fact, uh, we'll kind of skim through a few verses here. Look back at verse 18. He says, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So he's, he's comparing uh, silver and gold, which is perishable, to the blood of Christ. Now look at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, he says, through the living and enduring word of God. Look at verse 24. All men are like grass, their glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord, this is the cross of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That stands forever, he says. And then look down at chapter 2, verse 2, and you'll, you kind of see it here. He says, like newborn babies crave pure, not watered down, not uh, spiritual milk, not the truth, not the gospel with some human effort included in it. But he's saying, he's saying that the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity, crave that, pure spiritual milk. Now, all of this is to make the point that Christian change, the kind of change that the cross brings into people's lives, is distinctive from human self-help and religion. And you ask, well, how? How's it, how's it distinctive? Go back to verse 23 for just a moment. Verse 23. He says... Um, he says, you have been born again. There's that metaphor again of birth and child development. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody this morning. This is, that's, it's not my point to do that. But understand that the metaphor here is childbirth. Okay, so what is Peter saying here? What he's saying is that before Christ, people, humans... Um, he, now remember, this is a comparison, but he's saying human beings before Christ are like unfertilized eggs. And what has to happen to an unfertilized egg in order for it to become human? 
Well, it has to be inseminated by male seed. And what he wants us to see here is that the born-again experience is distinctive from any other kind of change because what happens in the born-again experience is that the divine seed is implanted in human beings. And suddenly, in that moment, there is within a human the spark of the divine. There is a new life that comes about in that moment. And suddenly, there is new potential for people that was never possible for them before. Now, understand, only Christianity has the audacity to claim that kind of experience. No other world religion claims that kind of thing. No other religion could. No self-help guru would ever claim to be able to implant the divine into the human. So that's how it's distinctive. But, I, but there's something else that I want you to see. It's very close, closely related. Look back up at verse 22. Look back up at verse 22. He says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. In other words, that's by trusting, by believing in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Just stop there. Um, what he's referring to here is the moment that divine life is implanted in a human being. At that moment, when that human becomes whole, alive with the divine spark, he says, he wants us to understand that in that moment there is a purification that happens to a person. But here's what I really want you to see that word that's translated yourselves, where he says, now that you have purified yourselves, I want you to understand this. That is actually the Greek word suke which means soul. It's it's the word from which we get the word psychology. And what Peter is saying is that the new birth, being born again, this moment when the divine seed is implanted in a human soul, what he's saying is that it is distinctive in that it changes the very core of your being. It changes your soul. Okay, now again, no self-help, uh, no self-help guru, no religion can make that claim. In fact, I would even tell you this. Modern-day psychology, which you just saw etymo- etymologically means the study of the soul, it won't even... Modern-day psychology doesn't even address the soul because it doesn't believe in the existence of the human soul. And so you see what self-help does, what religion does, is it, is it makes external changes to people's lives without ever addressing the core issues of the human soul. Only the cross of Christ can do that. You know, it's like this. It's like uh, religion and and, uh, self-help stuff. It's like like trying to create... It's like trying to treat a computer virus. Okay, imagine that your computer has some virus because you have a... You have a PC, not a, not a Mac. But uh, that's something. Uh, imagine that, you have, uh, that your computer has a virus in it, and you try to treat it by sticking, uh, putting a sticker on the outside that, that says, uh, be healthy. Okay, has the computer changed? Well, it's changed on the outside. It's got a sticker on it that it didn't have before. But has the core problem of the computer been dealt with? Well, no, of course not. Because to deal with the core problem of the computer, you'd have to go inside into the hard drive where the virus is, and, and you would have to, you'd have to treat that. And see, the, the soul 
is the hard drive of the human being. Christianity, unlike religion, unlike self-help, goes to the core of the problem, to your soul that's been corrupted by sin. And, and, and what this passage is saying is that, is that the gospel purifies your soul so that radical change can begin to happen from the inside out. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. This is why, this is why all that stuff that some of you have heard about Christianity in the past, about, you know, don't drink and don't dance and don't, whatever all those things are, that's not what Christianity's about. See, that's external stuff. The gospel works from the inside out. It purifies the soul, and then that begins to change people on the outside. Gradually, over time, it brings explosive change into people's lives. Not incremental change, but explosive change because it's changed the very identity of who you are. It's changed, it's changed you at the core of your being. And so we should expect change, and we should expect distinctive change from the cross of Christ in people's lives. Okay, now here's my third point. And I, I'm going to have to, I've got to discipline myself here to be brief about this. But the, the third change that I want you to see, or the third thing I want you to see this morning about change, is that the orientation of change that the cross of Christ brings into people's lives, the orientation of that change is positive. Okay, it's positive. And let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 22. Look back at verse 20, 22. Uh, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth... So that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all envy and slander of every kind. Uh, Excuse me. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Okay, something odd there in verse 22, and I don't know if you noticed it. He says, now that you have sincere love... Uh, for your brothers, love. Now that you have love, love. And that's kind of, I don't know if you thought about it, but that's kind of odd. What, what's, he, what's he doing? Now that you have love, love. What's he, what's he saying there? Well, I want you to understand that he's using two different Greek words here. The first time, when he says, now that you have sincere love, the first time he uses a, a Greek word, it's, it's actually the word Philadelphian, he uses uh, that word to refer to a very human kind of love that often people have for one another. It's a very fragile kind of love. Um, it's also actually a very dividing kind of love. You ever think about that? That human love can actually be dividing. And the reason that it's a dividing kind of love, this first kind of love that he talks about, is that it's a, it's a love that only allows you to love people who are similar to you. It's that kind of natural affection you feel for someone who's very similar to you, but it's not the kind of love that loves across boundaries. It doesn't love across class boundaries or racial boundaries or socioeconomic boundaries or cultural boundaries, even personality boundaries. doesn't love across those. But once the, that's human love, but once the divine 
spark has ignited in your soul, there's a completely different kind of love that becomes possible for human beings. It's a deep and profound love that isn't fragile. It's even the kind of love that you can extend toward your enemies. It's a kind of love that crosses racial and socioeconomic and cultural and personality barriers. And it's a kind of love that's called in the Bible agape love. It's a different word. So he uses two different words for love here. He says, yeah, I understand that you have sincere love. You have a Philadelphian kind of love, but I have made it possible for you now to experience a completely different kind of love, one that's more profound, one that's deeper. It's called agape. And what Peter is calling these people to is on the basis of the new birth, he's calling them to demonstrate a completely different kind of love than was ever before possible. Now, okay, here's, 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 the other, here's what I want you to see in this. I want you to notice that the command to love comes before the command in chapter 2, verse 1, to get rid of stuff. And this is where I'm saying that the orientation of change in Christianity is positive, not negative. So what he's saying is because a new love is possible, love in that kind, with that kind of love... And what you'll see is that there's no room for this other stuff that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 1. There's no room for malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. No room for that kind of stuff because you have a deeper kind of love. Okay, now, now why is it important? Let me, let me, let me explain this um, by way of two different illustrations. Over the last 23 years of ministry, I have met a lot of Christian parents whose approach to raising their children in, in, in their Christian home, and I, I'm not making fun. This is not, when I go in their Christian home, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun. You'll, you'll understand this in just a minute. A lot of parents have, cho- have chosen a pro- an approach that is essentially negatively oriented. And what I mean by that is that they, they have, what they've tried to do is to isolate their kids from all evil. Okay? And so they, they put them in this very protective cocoon so that their kids won't be affected by evil. And look, there, there's some wisdom in that. I mean, you certainly want to protect your kids to some extent. I'm, I'm not arguing that you don't want to do that. There's some wisdom in that. But here's what I want you to get. That's not distinctly Christian. Moral people do that too. So do religious people. Christian Christian change is not just or even primarily the absence of evil in a person's life. It is first and foremost the presence of supernatural love. In people's lives. And here's the thing. You can't isolate your kids into supernatural love. You can isolate them from evil, certainly. But there's nothing supernatural about the absence of evil. What's supernatural is the presence of love, supernatural agape love in a person's life. And so it changes the way that we view holiness. It changes the way that we raise our children. It 
The gospel changes everything. Now, there's a, let, me, let me apply this. Let me apply this in another way so maybe you'll understand it this way. There are some of you that spend way too much time trying to eliminate evil in your life without trying to develop the supernatural that Christ has put in your life as a result of the new birth. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, Every man I know struggles with lust, uh, including me. Every man I know struggles with lust. And every man I know um, feels bad about it, and you try not to lust, and you, you, know, you don't watch certain things, and you monitor what goes in your eyes, and all, the, all of that's very wise, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not wise. It's very wise. But I want you to understand that Christianity is not after the absence of lust. Christianity wants to change you in a positive way. What Christianity wants to do is it wants to make make it possible to love women in such a way that you see their inherent dignity and worth so much that you would never want to violate that inherent dignity and worth in them, not even in your head. You'd certainly never want to do it physically. But you wouldn't even want to do it in your head because you see how valuable this person is and how much dignity this person has, so much so that that Christ died on the cross for this person. And you never want to violate that. And so, yes, yes, you you take steps uh, to try to minimize the amount of lust that you experience and the opportunities to lust. Yeah, you, you try to do that. But you see, the, the, the orientation of Christianity is, is, is positive. It's, Christianity wants to give you the capacity to love. It's not just the absence of lust. It's not negative, the absence of lust. That's not what Christianity is after. Christianity is after love people in a supernatural kind of way. Now, let's compare that. Let's compare Christianity here with, say, let's use Islam as an example. Do you know why uh, Muslim women wear burqas? You know why? Uh, it's because they want to try to keep uh, Muslim men from lusting. Does it work? No. No, it does not. But here's the most important thing. Do the burqas and, and all of that, do they demonstrate, does Islam demonstrate the value and dignity of women? I would argue no. You see, Christianity is so different because the orientation of change in Christianity is positive. It wants to create something in you that was never there before. It's not necessarily just trying to... It's not primarily or just trying to take things that were there away. It wants to put something new in you, okay? All right, I got I to gotta move on because we're running out of time. Fourth, a fourth thing. The kind of change that we're talking about as a result of the cross in the life of the believer, it's motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, look back at verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, just for a moment. And then, we'll, and then we'll wrap up here. Verse 18. 
You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Where did that happen? Where was the blood of Christ shed? It was shed on the cross. And I want you to notice that all of the change that Peter talks about in this passage that happens, as, that happens to people comes as a result of the precious blood of Christ being shed for people. Now, here's what I want you to know. Listen to this. In self-help and religion, in self-help and religion, motivation for change is essentially selfish. It's all about me. I don't want to worry. I don't want to be anxious anymore. I, I don't like feeling anxiety all the time. I don't want to be known as a mean person. So I, I want to change. I, I don't want to be known as a racist person. So I want, to, I want to change. I want my marriage to work. I want my children to love me. So how can I be better about all of that? Um, I want to be a good person. I don't want to go to hell. I, I, I don't want my parents to reject me. And so all of the change is essentially very self-centered. In fact, all of the efforts to change in self-help and religion are actually, actually what those efforts do is that they deepen the roots of selfishness in the human soul. They make, it, they make the roots go deeper. Even though there's change externally, the roots of selfishness go deeper as a result of self-help and religion. But that's not so with Christianity. And I don't know if you saw the last line of this passage. I don't know if you, if you paid attention to it. But he says, Peter says, chapter 2, verse 3, Grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I want you to get this. That the motivation for change in Christianity is not fear. It's not guilt. The motivation for change is not the fear of losing your salvation, but the motivation for change in Christianity is, is love for Christ. It's, 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 look at how good Jesus is. Look what he did for me. Look at how his precious blood was shed for me. I want to change for him. I want to be different for his sake. I love him. I mean, is there anything that I wouldn't be willing to do for him? Is there anything I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice for him? Look at what he did for me. That's the motivation of Christianity. It's, it's about him. It's not about me. Oh, how he loves me. And, and as a result, oh, how I love him. Do you see the difference between self-help and religion and Christianity? On the one hand, in self-help, in, in religion, it's all about me. And in Christianity, it's all about Christ. The cross changes everything, including me and my motives. And folks, what I, what I want to say is that this is what the city of Evansville and beyond needs. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can change people like the gospel of Jesus Christ can. The city of Evansville doesn't need fear. The city of Evansville doesn't need uh, guilt. The city of Evansville doesn't need people whose approach is negative. Don't you do this. Don't you do that. The city of Evansville needs people who've been changed by grace and by the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's what we need as, as a city. And that's the kind of church that city church is going to be. 
of people who've been changed by the grace and the goodness of God. And out of that, we want to make an impact in this city. And we want to introduce them to that gracious and good Savior. Spiritual renewal and social renewal and cultural renewal in this city will come as a church like ours is profoundly changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not self-help, not religion, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's close in prayer. Lord, we, we are stunned as we come across a passage like this that speak to, speaks to us about the radical kind of change that is possible through the cross of Christ, but also the distinctive change that comes through the cross of Christ. Uh, we are stunned by the difference between Christianity and self-help and religion. We are moved to a place that we recognize that the only hope for this city is the cross of Jesus Christ. Or would you give us a sense of passion and urgency about that? Uh, a, a, a conviction that the only hope for this city is the cross of Jesus Christ. Or would you make us the kind of people that are out to help, that are help to move, that are, that are out to move people toward Christ? Would you use us profoundly, Lord? We are stunned by the fact that you are alive and that you are alive in us. That we are no longer the same people that we once were as a result of the cross of Jesus Christ. But there is now something divine in us, someone divine in us, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you change us radically and profoundly? Give us a love that can't be duplicated, it can't be imitated. The love that could only be given by supernatural uh, process and power. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship, that we pray, and that we are changed. We love you. Amen.